I want to speak to you today about how we as a church are to identify ourselves. I'm not talking about branding. I'm not talking about how we identify ourselves as a unique religious community or service institution, but rather how you and I are to take our place within the larger body of Christ. See, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how the people of God are like the various parts of Jesus' own body, his hands, his ears, his eyes, his feet, etc. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually you're members of it. What that means is that you, the collective you, us, we are the body of Christ, the singular body of Christ. But, but some are the ears, some are the foot, some are the nose, some are the, some are the hair, I don't know. It, but we all serve our purpose within the body of Christ. Now everybody take a quick look, a quick survey at your own body. Just kind of take a look, check, check it out. No, no, don't check out anybody else's, check out your own. Check out your body. And I want you to notice that the parts of your body are incredibly different, right? See, my feet, thank God, neither look like nor serve the same function as my nose. Although some people pick their nose and their feet. But, sorry, just I digress. My liver, although I've never seen it, hopefully never will. That's never a good day when you see your own liver. My liver does not function and does not look like my medulla oblongata. But which of these things, of all these things I mentioned, which one of them is the most important? Well, that's a ludicrous question, isn't it? Which one would you rather live without? Just let us know and we'll come take one of them. You hear what I'm saying here? The question's obviously ludicrous. All of my parts, though different, are vital to my completeness and my operation. All of them. See, churches often try to organize by gathering the parts of the body that look just like themselves. So you have nose churches, you have feet churches, you have liver churches, you have medulla oblongata churches, although we identify them differently. We call them Baptist and Methodist and Pentecostal and cowboy churches and biker churches and young people churches and old people churches and so on and so forth. But the parts of a body don't form a person, listen to me, by just being a wad of ears or toes stuck together. You hear what I'm saying? They, they're unique in their personhood when they're gathered together, different as they are, to form a single individual body with each part performing a role that they alone were designed to perform best in community with all the other parts. In the same way, the best churches are ones... Now listen, this is such an important thing that we're getting further and further away from in church culture. In the same way, the best churches are the ones where people are willing to gather together week in and week out with people, listen, that they have nothing in common with. Nothing, that is, except for the rescue that we've all experienced through the work of Jesus Christ. It's cool, because it creates this amazing... Mind-blowing environment when, it, when it's working properly where tattooed bikers and little old ladies can be genuinely invested in teenagers with serious questions and successful business people can share life with the poorest in the city. Many parts, one body. 
It's where racial and social distinctions literally melt away because the bond of our shared heritage in Christ make all of that seem so meaningless, so petty, so silly. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this, by this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. That's the mark. It's not the sign out on the street. It's not the, the size of the Bible I walk around with. It's whether I have love, if I, if I love you. But John also said, he said, how can I say I love God who I've never seen if I don't love you who I have seen? It's impossible. So what are we learning here? Listen, first thing about our identity, it's this, that we shouldn't seek to identify so much with one another but with Christ. See, in other words, I don't try to look like you or, or I don't just like you because you look like me in order that we can have community. I also don't try to just represent Christ to this neighborhood or our city or the world by myself be, uh, without you because guess what? I can't. I cannot by myself represent Christ. Neither can you. Instead, I come together with you in gospel-oriented community and united together with all of our talents, all of our giftings, all of our unique personalities, and some of you are more unique than others. I'm looking at you, Paul Brooks. With all of our unique personalities, we begin to take on the image of Christ before the watching world. I can't do it without you, like I said, and you can't do it without me. The person who says, well, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm okay with him, but I just don't need the church. Let me let you in on a little secret. That person proves beyond any shadow of a reasonable doubt they know absolutely nothing about Christ. They know absolutely nothing about the scriptures, and they have no idea what church is all about. So if we're to identify with Christ, not based on mere shared tastes and interests, what does it look like practically? In order to discover the answer, what I did is I did a word search this week through the New Testament. And the first, the word for search that I was looking for was, was the phrase with Christ or with him as it applies to Christ. I found out that there are four main categories where a believer has to identify with Jesus. We identify with Jesus in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his triumphant reign. All of these should be very, very instructive as we try to understand what Northridge Life Church should be all about. So we're told in the scriptures, and if you would grab your Bible and turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 3. Um, now, uh, we've got in your pew, if you don't have a Bible here this morning, there's some pews uh, in, in your chair, rather. There's some Bibles in the chair in front of you in the pocket. Um, you, can, you can use that. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that as our gift to you. But uh, in, in those Bibles, it'll be on page 571. But we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3 here, and we're going to start in verse 7. And this is what we read. This is amazing. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, listen to this carefully, folks. 
I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul is saying here that there is nothing more valuable to him than simply knowing Christ. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith, and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering. See, most of us say, I want to know the power of his resurrection, but we stop at the sharing in his sufferings. That I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me tell you something. This idea of suffering with Jesus is not in any way popular. But also, if you read the New Testament, if you believe what it says, this is absolutely a non-negotiable to anyone who wants to really follow Christ. It is an absolute non-negotiable. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, anybody ever remember reading that in the Scriptures? When Jesus said that, Where do you think that he was saying to follow him to? Take up your cross and follow me. We're all going on a pleasure cruise to the Bahamas. That's not where you go with a cross. You only carry a cross to your very own bloody, painful, horrific death. That's where you take a cross. Woo! Let's take another offering. I've mentioned this before, but do you realize that the word excruciating, you know where that comes from? It's two Latin root words that literally mean out of the cross. So when you say, this pain is excruciating, Jesus is saying, yeah, tell me about it. Out of the cross. See, in in the verse we just read, this passage in Philippians 3, a strong connection is made to suffering. Listen, listen, listen as a prerequisite to the good stuff that we'll be discussing in a minute, namely resurrection and reigning. See, Paul says, if you look at it again, Paul says that knowing the power of his resurrection corresponds to sharing in his suffering. It's been said before that the cross always precedes the crown. He goes on to say that that he must, quote, become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Till I suffer, there's no chance of being like him in his resurrection. Similarly, in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, Paul speaks of the believer's status as a fellow heir with Christ. Now you think about that. The Bible says that all of this is his. All of this, he owns it. Someday it'll be given to him in a very uh, official, I guess you'd say, way. As the kingdoms of this world, it says in Revelation, become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And Paul says that we're fellow heirs with him in that. But but when he states that in Romans 8, he states that this privilege is, guess what, conditional. Don't take my word for it. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now listen to these next words, provided 
we suffer with him. I'm a joint heir with Jesus. Have you met the condition of that? Have you met the condition of suffering for his name? He says, provided we suffer for him in order that we may also be glorified in him. Now, I understand that you, that, that you guys might be thinking, what are you saying here, Mark? Are you, are you kind of some kind of doom and gloom? You know, everybody has to walk around with a hangdog look on their face. No, I'm not saying here. I don't, I don't mean to say that we go around beating ourselves up, masochistically subjecting ourselves to every form of degradation to somehow earn our way into heaven, kind of like we're experiencing purgatory here on earth. Of course I'm not saying that. Listen to what I mean. Well, this is what suffering for Jesus means. It means that you and I stop placing ultimate value in the blessings that sometimes trickle into our life. Instead, we look to the Lord and we're confident. Listen, we're confident that He alone gets to define what good is and what bad is. He alone. I don't have that right. I do not get to define good and bad. He does. Why? Because I belong to him, and he is always good. So he gets to define good and bad. If I suffer loss, I I recognize that God, because he loves me, because he loves me, is destroying my idols. He is destroying my dependencies, and he's granting me the great, wonderful, awesome, gracious opportunity to put my trust only in him. Paul said it like this, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That's why, if I can do a little soapboxing here, that's why I have zero tolerance for the so-called prosperity gospel, which, listen to me, is no gospel at all. It stands in direct contradiction to the teaching of Jesus himself who said in this life you would suffer tribulation. If someone on TV or on the radio or on the internet is selling you some magical theological beans to show you how to be healthy and wealthy and avoid suffering, listen to me, it is not the message of the Bible they are giving you. It's the message of their own greedy hearts. So at Northridge Life Church, may we always identify with Christ by measuring our suffering against the unshakable goodness of God, not by the temporary pain or discomfort we experience. Paul said again in Romans 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Secondly, we identify with Christ by sharing in His death. Flip over to Romans chapter 6 with me. Let's take a look at this. So Romans chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 1. This is page uh, 549 if you're using one of the church's Bibles. And it says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin... Still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
See, we signify that we've been crucified with Christ, that we share in his death by our baptism. Listen, baptism doesn't make you dead with Christ. It just signifies that you're dead with Christ. But what is it exactly that our baptism is signifying? Well, first, baptism shows that we're dead to sin. We sang about it in that last song. Paul asked the rhetorical question here. How can we, how can we, who have died to sin, continue to live in it? Haven't you ever been amazed watching the life of some believers who, who have just absolutely surrendered to every power of their sin? There's no struggle. There's no, there's no brokenness. They're just surrendered to the power of sin and yet still claiming that they're a Christian. Maybe even having other, other people defending saying, oh yeah, yeah, he's a believer. He goes to church. He you know, reads his Bible. He gives a little bit of money. And, and the Bible says no. Help me. The Bible says that that's contradictory. That if we truly have died with Christ to sin, we can't live in it anymore. Because one thing is going to happen, either it's going to prove that we weren't what we said we were in the first place, or it's going to make us so sick, spiritually, that we can't bear it. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? This is not to imply, don't misunderstand me, I'm not talking about sinless perfection here. It's not to imply that anyone lives completely free of moral fault. Because First John tells us, if anybody says, oh yeah, I never sinned. You know how John defines that person? A liar. That's what Paul says. He says, anybody who says I have no sin, that guy's a liar. Mark that guy. It means that if someone has truly placed their life and their, their trust in Christ, this is what it means. It doesn't mean that you, you never sin anymore. It means that if someone has truly placed their trust in Christ, the power of sin in your life should be steadily diminishing. Steadily. Day in, day out. Now, the change, especially to you, because you're real close to it, the change may be in, imperceptible from one day to the next, but over the course of months, over the course of years, you notice, whoa, chains are gone. Well, oh, I'm not in bondage anymore. My bondage, my chain has been replaced by new and glorious freedom. And the church, the Bible calls this process sanctification. Secondly, to be crucified with Christ means to be dead to our own sinful will and our desires and alive to God's choices and God's way of doing things. It means that if you identify with Christ in his death, you become dead to self. Now, some of you go, oh, that sounds terrible. And you don't know what it means to be dead to self. Because if your life is being destroyed right now, let me let you in on a little secret. You're doing it. I'm so glad that three of you agree with me. At least I'm not standing up here completely alone. I said, if your life is being destroyed right now, chances are better than not that you're doing it. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as a real victim. I'm just saying the messes, I've been a victim in many instances in my life, but the worst messes, I was the author of. I made my own mess, my own bed to lie in. It means that when we die, when we, when we are associated with Christ in his death, our sinful will, our desires, uh, they die with it. And, and, and we become alive to God's choices and his way of doing things. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, real familiar scripture. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. And listen, here's what he means. He says, it is no longer I who live. Right. Guess who lives? He says, Christ 
lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, this day-to-day stuff, he said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, sanctification not only teaches us to say no to sin, but it teaches us to increasingly say yes to God. Yes to God. This results in obedience. It's the death of selfishness and the birth of joyful, sacrificial living for the glory of King Jesus. Thirdly, to be crucified with Christ means to be dead to the law. And somebody ought to say amen. Amen. Dead to the law as a means of appeasing God or of obtaining righteousness. Romans 7, chapter 7, verse 6 says, But now we're released from the law. You ain't on parole. You ain't on probation. Your record is clear. You are free from the law because you died with Christ. Now we're released from the law, having died to what that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, as, as believers, I said this earlier, we understand that we have zero self-generated righteousness. All the righteousness that you and I have is because of Jesus. And it's not because of our hard work or our high moral standards. This means because his righteousness cannot be altered, it cannot be polluted, and he has freely given us his righteousness, that now our righteousness... I'm waiting. You've got to brace yourself for this. If you are in Christ, if you're trusting in Christ this morning, your righteousness is beyond corruption. Let's think in for a minute. Oh, God, I wish I wasn't doing this again. Lord, I'm so sorry that I thought that thought, did that thing, spoke to that person, treated those people that way, had that that issue in my heart or my mind. If you are in Christ this morning, your righteousness, because it's really not your righteousness, is beyond corruption. Well, come on now. What what about when I sin? (laughs) That ain't Jesus' righteousness you're seeing. That's your righteousness. Your attempt at righteousness. And the Bible says that your righteousness is as filthy rags. And if I may be so crass, that term used for filthy rags in the scriptures, look it up, I'm not lying, actually implies a menstrual cloth. That's God's image of the righteousness that you can produce. But guess what? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Your righteousness in Christ is beyond corruption. That's why I don't try to walk in my own righteousness. I walk in His righteousness alone. Not not mine, and not a hybrid of His and mine, but His alone. Because of this, we don't do good things because God will get us if we don't. But we do good things because we love Jesus Christ. And so we love what pleases Jesus Christ. Therefore, Northridge Life Church has to be a church of people who reckon themselves dead with Christ to sin, to self, and the law. Thirdly, y'all still with me? 
Thirdly, we identify with Christ in His rising. Once more, go to the Scriptures. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, beginning, it says this. It says, listen to me. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Listen, for you have died. We just talked about that, didn't we? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. From this verse in Colossians, we we see that we're to seek and to set our minds on things that are above where Christ is enthroned at the right hand of God. And there's at least a couple of things I want to point out to you about this. To identify with Christ in his resurrection, to, to enjoy and experience his resurrection power, is to listen to teleconference with the highest authority in the highest place of all. You understand the concept of teleconferencing, right? In the early 2000s, I worked as a regional manager for a company that was based in Abilene. And to my great frustration, every other week or so, they would call me and say, meeting today, 11 a.m., you got to be there, mandatory meeting. So I would jump in my van here in Lubbock, and I would drive the three hours it takes to get to Abilene, go to the office, get in there, and we would have, I kid you not, a 45-minute meeting. And then I would get back in my van and drive the three hours back to Lubbock. And so I did a six-hour round trip for a 45-minute meeting. Now, had I been working for this company in this day of technology, we could have accomplished the same thing much more inexpensively, much more efficiently using Skype or FaceTime. Even though I wasn't physically in those meetings, it would have been as though I was. Let me tell you something. Sin and religion, because they're kind of the same thing. Sin and religion will always make you commute six hours for a 45-minute meeting. <laughs> Think about it. Think about it. What, is, what, is, what does sin do? What does religion do? Do this, 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 do this. And here's the payoff. See, see what I'm saying? That's what sin does. But... But when I read that I am able to, since I've been raised with Christ, to set my mind on things above, even though I'm not physically or fully in body, soul, and spirit in heaven yet, but I've been invited to join Christ there. I've been invited to join Christ there as often as I please to consult with Him, to worship Him and just simply to enjoy His company via this divine, risen with Christ teleconferencing. And someday I'm going to be there forever. But right now, I can go there anytime I want. Through prayer, through worship. This is the very opportunity that you and I have as believers that caused the blind 19th century hymn writer Fanny Crosby. She wrote in that hymn that we probably most of us know, Blessed Assurance, this is my story. This is my song. She said, she said about that relationship with, with Christ, she said it was a foretaste of glory divine. 
Some of you are going to die, go to heaven, get there, and die and have a heart attack all over again because you will not recognize the place when you get there. Why? Because you've never been there. But the sad thing about that is Jesus has invited you into His very presence, into His very throne room every day of your life. As often as you want to go there, you can become very, very familiar with the throne room before you ever show up there. Wow. When we worship up here, man, the throne room, the Bible says that God literally inhabits the praise of the people. What it means is he sets up a throne where his people are worshiping him. You can teleconference right into the very throne room of God when you worship. When you pray, the Bible says you come boldly into the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to find help in time of need. You can become very familiar with the throne room right now. That's what it means to set your, 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 your thoughts on things above. Paul uh, meant this when he told the Ephesians that we've already, already, not you're waiting to, you've already been seated with Christ in heavenly places. But we also see that to, ra- to be raised with Christ implies that we have a, a heavenly perspective, that we don't see things like everyone else sees things. Paul says that our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. See, living in sin is like living homeless in some back alley gutter in a large city. When you roll out of your cardboard box every morning, the first thing you see is rats scurrying through the piles of trash. Sometimes you hear the angry screams coming from some domestic dispute in the buildings around you. Maybe you see emergency vehicles racing by all day long with lights flashing and sirens blaring. Your low position in life determines your perspective. Everything you see is... Close up, 3D, HD in all its gritty reality. Doesn't matter whether you are a low-down sinner or a respectable sinner, and we all know the difference. This analogy applies. See, in one way or another, living in sin is total street-level, depressing, sensory overload. You're surrounded by filth, conflict, disruption, noise all the time. Am I right? Do you remember it? You remember that? But being raised with Christ, experiencing His resurrection power, is more like first-class air travel. Again, I'm not implying that the Christian life is always like some romantic dash through a field of daisies. I'm speaking primarily about perspective. See, when you're raised with Christ, you're off the ground. You see the big picture the world seems better ordered, ordered and guided by a larger purpose. Your position, seated with Christ in heavenly places, determines your perspective. You're not fighting for survival because someone else, the pilot whose name is Jesus, is in control. You can sit back and enjoy the scenery, or heck, you can even rest. Even if turbulence occurs, the one that's flying the plane has the knowledge and has the tools get you where you're going. Aren't you glad? Being raised with Christ is the very definition of peace. Peace that Jesus said overcomes the world. My flesh and the very powers of hell, it overcomes them all. And that's my perspective in all things as a believer. The perspective of peace. 
So Northwoods Life Church must be committed to walking in the resurrection power of Christ, regular meeting, regularly meeting with Him in heavenly places through prayer, petition, worship. We have to view all of life, politics, economics, entertainment, relationships, all of it from a higher, heavenly, resurrected perspective. Lastly, one more. We identify with Christ in His reigning. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. Start in verse 16, page 562. Paul says this. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When I say that we reign with Christ, I'm certainly not implying that we are his equals in power and glory. I'm pointing out to you that Christ has delegated his very kingly authority to his kingdom servants in order to accomplish kingdom purposes. In this passage, Paul speaks of those of us who have been reconciled to God. That's you and I, if we're believers in Christ. Being entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, literally placing in our hands the very message of reconciliation, which he himself used to save us through the cross. Now, here's the bombshell revelation. Here it is. Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God was making his appeal through us. You're an ambassador. Now think about that. Do you understand the role of an ambassador? The U.S. ambassador to China is not President Trump. But when he speaks in his official capacity, he speaks with all of the authority of the, Uni- of the entire United States government. In a very real sense, he is reigning with the authorities that gave him that position. He does not worry whether he can back up what he says or whether his audience will like it, or whether they'll like him. He doesn't have that luxury. When he's told what to speak, he doesn't soften it. He doesn't alter it. He has to deliver the message as it was handed to him. Similarly, similarly, you and I are Christ's ambassadors. God is appealing to the world through us. We are not God, but when we proclaim what we are commanded to proclaim, we speak with all of the authority of heaven. All of the authority of heaven. This is what it means to reign with Christ in this life. It's not my problem if the people I'm sent to don't like it or don't like me. I've been told to speak and I must not soften or alter God's message and neither must you. This puts our daily work. Listen, you might think, oh, I've got to get up on Monday morning and go to that stinking job again. Listen, if you get this, if you get this idea of your ambassadorship in Christ, it will totally change your perspective. You are not an engineer. 
You are not a nurse. You don't even flip burgers at McDonald's. Listen, you're God's representative at that firm. You're God's representative at that hospital. You are God's representative at McDonald's. They're just paying you to be there. To give you the opportunity to be gospel salt and gospel light. What an awesome responsibility. What an awesome opportunity. So Northridge Life Church has been called to this neighborhood around us in order to represent the interests of our king. Not our own interests. The interests of our king. We will proclaim his message to them. And that message is simply this. Hey, Northridge, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And we're going to strive to identify with Christ by constantly adorning that simple message with genuine love and costly acts of service. As individuals and as a church, let us commit our hearts to suffering with Him that we might truly know Him in purity undistracted by the values and the idols of this world. Let us identify with his death. Let us be found as a people increasingly dead to sin, dead to self, and and dead to the law as an answer to what is killing us. Let us identify with his resurrection and all of its attendant power that gives us 24-7 access to the throne room, as well as a newer and better perspective. And let us reign with him as his ambassadors, passionately making God's appeal to this broken, fallen, and sinful world.